we're, we're doing a series on the book of John, and we are getting towards the end. We're right now, <clears throat> we're in John chapter 20, and we're, we, we, the resurrection has happened. And I want to, just to review, um, last week, we saw Mary just struggling. She, she came to the tomb. She saw that, that it was empty. She doesn't know what to do. Uh, she sees someone and she says, you know, like she sees Jesus. Actually, she doesn't, doesn't know who she is. And the first thing she says is, have you taken his body? See, that's, that's where the whole stealing of the body thing came from. It came originally. It was the first thing they thought of. And she doesn't know what's going on. The body's gone. Resurrection is not at all what even entered into her mind, right? Theft is what entered into her mind. And then Peter and John come rushing to the tomb, right? And they go in and they're seeing and they're furiously, the Greek is very clear here, they're furiously trying to figure out how to make sense of the fact that there's no body here. But there's these grave clothes that are sitting there like there's a body inside, but it's empty. And, and, the, and, the, and the, the piece of cloth that goes over the head, they just would lay over the head, has been folded up and set to the side. Like someone was careful, right? Being careful. And they don't know what to believe. It says, and it says that, that John believed, and then it immediately says, and John's writing this, and he says he believed, and immediately says he didn't quite understand that scriptures were being fulfilled this way, that this, this is what was happening. He still didn't get it. Very difficult. And so then we see Jesus coming to Mary. And what does he do? I mean, it's just such a tender, loving moment. He calls her by name. He says, Mary. And she realizes it's Jesus. He's back. Unbelievable. And, and the way that kind of plays out, it's like he's back for me. He came back for me. But that plays out for all of us. He came back for you. He had you in mind. He had me in mind. He came back. And if we were there in that garden, I mean, he would have looked at me and said, Bob, it's me. It's me. So we're dealing with something here. We're dealing with a love that breaks down all the barriers. We're dealing with the resurrection. You know, the gospel writers were very selective in what they wrote about. We don't know. We don't know how tall Jesus is or was, still is. We don't know who his childhood friends were. We don't know much about his childhood. The only thing I can think about is that it must have been tough to be a friend of Jesus, right? You go home and your parents are always saying, why can't you be like Jesus? He's such a good kid. What's wrong with you? What happened to you, right? I had two older brothers, and they excelled at a number of things. And uh, one of them excelled especially in the area of academics. And uh, when we were going to school, he was five years ahead of me, but the school systems always issued report cards on the same day. And he would come home, bam! Straight A's, yeah, mom and dad, look, this is great. And I would walk past them to my room, right? And they say, Robert, get back in here. Bobby, get back in here. We need to see your report card. We have to sign it. I said, do you really? Because I could do it, yeah. And that, no. And they were like, oh, well, and it's, it's just to kill me. My mom would always say, as long as you're trying your hardest, 
Okay, as long as you're trying your hardest is code for dummy, right? And they didn't say, why can't you be like your brother Steve? But I knew the thought was there. Your brother Steve was killing it in the third grade. You're mediocre, right? Mediocre Bob. They'd call, no, they didn't call me that. So it must have been difficult to be Jesus' friend. Now, think about this. How difficult would it have been to be Jesus' brother or sister, right? There's a broken glass. Who broke this? Okay, I know it wasn't Jesus. You can leave. The rest of you. And they'd be like, right? I, it must have been tough. But we don't know. We don't know a ton about this. We don't know, we don't know all the miracles he did. John tells us this. A little later, we'll look at the verse. He tells us we couldn't write all the miracles. So we didn't do all the miracles. They were very selective in what they wrote about. All four gospel writers had a purpose. And you can see that when you, each gospel is different in certain ways, and each one plays out to a purpose. John is talking about how Scripture is answered by Jesus. He's talking about how Jesus is God. He just keeps hammering certain themes over and over and over. But... All four of them are agreeing on one purpose, one certain thing, and that's the resurrection. And that's because the resurrection makes everything fit. The resurrection makes sense of everything in the whole world. So let's talk about this. And before I show you my first point, I'm talking today, we're talking about the, the great, in a sense, a, a way of saying the Great Commission and also John's confession is what's going on here. But I want you to see something, and I think I'm just going to say it. It's the thing we all know, but we don't think we should say because we're good Christians, and good Christians don't say this. The resurrection is hard. It's hard. This is a hard thing. And, and the thing is, we can, oftentimes we secretly, we struggle with this, and we, and we believe it, but here's the key. Here's the thing. The resurrection, when you come to grips with it, and when you really begin to understand the implications of it, and it begins to sink into your heart, it changes everything. It changes everything in the whole world. Everything fits. Everything is explained. And it's not uniquely hard for us. You know, as 21st century uh, Americans and the culture that we live in, it's not uniquely hard for us. It is hard in any culture, in any time period. It was hard for the disciples. It was hard for them. So let's look at this. In verse 19, it says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. This word overjoyed in the Greek is the most strong, strongest way they can say crazy happy, just out of, the, out of their minds, right? They're overjoyed. But look at that in verse 19. Now, Peter and John have gone to the grave. And they've come back and they've told them all, it's empty. The grave is empty. Mary Magdalene has come to them all and said, it's not just empty. I saw Jesus. I spoke to Jesus. He told me to come tell you. I am here on the authority of Jesus Christ to tell you he's alive. So what do they do? They lock the doors 
and they're afraid. What are they afraid of? That the Romans are gonna come and kill them. Because oftentimes, when there were false messiahs, they'd kill the false messiah and they'd kill some of the followers of the false messiah to make an example of anyone who causes problems with Rome. And so, what are they thinking? They're gonna kill us. They're gonna kill us. Why? Because they still are not sure if they believe Jesus is alive. And so they're, they're totally afraid. And so they've locked the doors. The only thing they know to do, they're hiding. And Jesus, luckily for them, has no problem with locked doors. He just shows up. Now, <clears throat> this is where, you know, all, over and over and over in these past, in these, through this, this whole time of the week before and, and the crucifixion and the, tri the trial, the crucifixion, all this, I've mentioned before, it's amazing. It's amazing how Jesus behaves. When, if he'll say something, he could get off, he says nothing. When, if he would say nothing, there, then the problem would be resolved, he says something. He's amazing in what he's doing. And here, it's amazing to me how loving and sympathetic and restrained Jesus is. Because I would walk through the wall of the door and go, ta-da, you losers. I told you this. How many times did I tell you this would happen? How many times does scripture tell you this? Is yeah, there, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I, it would just be like, man, but he doesn't. What does he do? He says, I'm bringing you peace. There's peace in this. I have risen from the dead. Okay, here, look, okay. You guys, I've risen from the dead. There's peace in this. This is the answer. This is the answer. No matter what people told him, no matter what Peter and John or Mary told him, they were not believing it. Well, Peter and John are in that room with him with a locked door, hiding in fear. They're afraid for their lives. They don't know what happened. They're thinking something has happened, but it has, that resurrection is not the thing they're thinking of. And they wouldn't listen to the eyewitnesses. Think about that. They would not listen to the eyewitnesses. How much are they like us? Because this is where we can struggle in listening to eyewitnesses. So Jesus appears to them and they become eyewitnesses. You know, think about this. How are historical documents made? They're written by eyewitnesses, right? When you, and then what do you do? You examine the document to see how accurate it is in big things and in little things, things you can measure accuracy with. The four Gospels have been proven to be uncannily, I'm, maybe the word would better be miraculously accurate, in the areas where they should not be accurate. They're incredibly accurate. If you have any questions about I have, I have, and I've mentioned this before, I have a small book, easy to read, that delves into this and shows, what do historians look for? They look for, do you get the geography right? Do you get the local religion right? Do you get local customs right? Do you get the monetary, uh, the money, the, the, the financial system right? Do you get the hierarchy right? Do you get the status right with who's low, who's high, who's in between? Do you get all, do you get north, south, east, west, up, down? Do you get all of that right? Do you get the flora and the fauna right? And here's the thing, and, and this is 
There's no doubt in this. It just is easily proven. The four gospels and the book of Acts get everything right. They get everything right. And we've talked about this before with names and different things like that. They get everything right. And so you think about it. How many things do you believe are true that are historical? In other words, you didn't see it. Tons. Tons of things. There's tons and tons and tons. I mean, just think about it. What have you not seen? Some of you have not seen 9-11. What, 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 what do you go by? Oh, the eyewitnesses. Because, because video and stuff like that is a form of eyewitnessing. Because if you don't think video can be manipulated to say something that's not true, you're not aware, right? Do you believe Woodrow Wilson was the president? Do you believe Abraham Lincoln was one of our presidents? What, what do you go off of? You go off of eyewitnesses. We do that all the time. It's a part of And what we do, we compare things rationally. We look for what eyewitnesses say. We, we say, does this person have a vested interest in this? I mean, this is what they do when they look at the Gospels. Do the four Gospel writers have a vested interest in saying that these things are true? Will they get something out of it? But just remember, when the four Gospel writers wrote the four Gospels, being a Christian was not legal in most parts of the world, or you were open to persecution for being a Christian. Economic persecution. They were not getting rich off of this. They did not yet see how huge the church would become. That wasn't their only thought was just tell people about Jesus. You see, they didn't have these outside ideas of why I should write this that we can see. And so then what does that do? That lends credence to the eyewitness. When, when sometimes, you know, we have a famous example. I'm going off track here. Um, when uh, Sennacherib attacked Israel, he made, a, uh, he made a carving. The length, longer than this room. You can see big chunks of it at the British Museum now. I've seen them. It's really amazing. And he talks, he, he does, he makes in this carving picture stories of when he attacks certain cities. And one of them he does a big is the city of Lachish, which we have the archaeological evidence for. And he says, when I came to Lachish, everyone ran there for safety because of its walls. And I tore those walls down. And I killed this many people. And I led this many people away in slavery. And I hung people on stakes of wood to die in front of everyone. And I did this, and I did this, and I did this. And he does that city after city after city. And then he comes to Israel, uh, Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem. And the biblical record tells us that the angel of the Lord smote. That's a good King James word. They smoted a whole army and, and they ran back in with their tail between their legs. But, you know, when you're writing about your army, you don't like to say, we did this to Lachish, and we did this to this, and we did this to this, and then in Jerusalem, we were smoted. And so they don't say that, right? The winner always kind of turns. And so what does he say he did? He says, and then I went to Jerusalem, and then I left Hezekiah. Um, um, he says in the, in the thing, I have to remember exactly, he says, I left him like a bird in a cage, trapped, and I went home. And you're like, wait, what about... Slaves, people killed, gold from the treasury, none of that? No, no. What is that? That's, a, that's the victor's way of saying I got defeated. I just, and so when we look at historical things, we say, why did they write this? Do they have a vested interest? All those types of things. And the four Gospels and the book of Acts are uncannily accurate, uncannily accurate. So we have a rational faith. 
But that's not the sum total of it because it's still a faith. There's still a step of faith that says, like we're going to see with Thomas, my Lord and my God. And people today are desperately trying to get past the resurrection and miracles. Those are not things that are in favor. Those are not things that people, people want to talk about a lot. And they, so they say, let's focus on what Jesus taught. These great moral truths to look, live by, these, these great rules to obey, love one another, be kind, be fair, be just. And D, Jesus has great moral teachings. But the key is not just what he said. This is the key. The key is what did he do? He broke the barrier between man and God. He broke into our existence. People will say, well, it's just about trying to be like Jesus as much as we can. No, it's what he did. Jesus has done something that fundamentally changes the world. The resurrection does not just make things better. It transforms things. It transforms people from the inside out. And when we come to grips with this, it is amazing. It changes your life. Even, I know you, you, we have lots of people here. They're saying, Bob, I believe it. I believe it. And, and, and I do too. It's just I know for a long time I believed the resurrection, but I didn't really come to grips with it. And when you come to grips with it, it gets you. It changes everything. Sometimes during the week uh, when I'm studying, a lot of sometimes I'll get up and I need to walk around some. So I'll come into, into this auditorium, it's empty, and I'll walk and I'll talk, I'll pray sometimes, or, or I'll talk out things to see how they sound, you know, because I'm thinking about, I'm going to be talking to you guys, and how does this sound, or how should I say this? And I was just talking about, the, and, and praying about this, uh, the resurrection, and how it transforms us, and how it grips us. And I, it's a weird thing. I got excited. I started going, man, God, this is just, this is it. This is everything. This is the answer to everything in the whole world. This is so excited. And I was thinking, and you came back for me. If I was in that garden, you would have said, Bob. And, and uh, I always worry people see me sometimes when I'm, I'm by myself. I think I'm by myself. And I, and I, I, <laughs> I danced a little bit. It was just so, it was like, Ah, overwhelming. I don't know how to explain it, but I'm just like, man, this is so cool. I just was, and that's what happens we, as we come to grips with it. It grips us in our soul. Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles' teaching. The eyewitnesses' teachings is, is our foundation. And Jesus appeared to a lot of people. We, Paul writes about this. He appeared even to 500 at one time. And Paul says, they're alive. Go check for yourself. There's these eyewitnesses. And then Paul says something interesting. He says, if this resurrection is not true, then we are the people to most be pitied. We are wasting our time and our money. The entire Christian faith rests on this. And John says again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So Jesus again, and, and John is going to miss this three times. Jesus again says, peace be upon you. Jesus is saying the, that the peace of God is 
intimately connected with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They go together. They follow after. Where there is belief in the resurrection, then there becomes peace. And here we see John, uh, Jesus gives them a job. Here's the eyewitness's job. He tells them, I'm sending you, just like the Father sent me. The Father sent me down to become a human being, to get into this culture, to become like you. And now I'm sending you to do that. <clears throat> Go into the whole world. <clears throat> Go into the whole world. Get into the culture. Know the people. Love them. Show them. Tell them about Jesus. You go in the name of Jesus and you preach the forgiveness of sins. And he gives them this peace because the power of his presence gives peace. He breathes the Holy Spirit upon them because the power that is behind all of this is the Holy Spirit working in our lives, changing hearts. We don't change hearts. The Holy Spirit changes hearts. The same power the disciples had we have. We have access to that power. That's an amazing thought. The power to change a person from the inside out. The power for a person to be transformed into a new creature. We're involved in that power. We are teaching and talking about that power. And then we come to verse 23. I know some of you are saying, is he going to talk about verse 23? Because that one scares me. All right, verse 23, let me just say, it's a very unusual sentence in the Greek. It's very hard to translate. Uh, it has to do with this idea that sometimes when an aorist tense is followed by a present tense, then it changes what those two, how they, how they work together, and by the perfect tense, I should say, not the present tense, uh, which, who cares, that doesn't mean anything, but just what it seems to be saying is this, is that when you preach the gospel and you preach the forgiveness of sins, those who accept the gospel have their sins forgiven forgiven. And you can tell them, your sins are forgiven. They're forgiven. And those who do not accept the gospel do not have their sins forgiven. And if they ask you, you can tell them, your sins are not forgiven. You are still in sin. See, we don't have the power to forgive sins, but we are the ones who announce it. We don't create it. We announce it. So that's the resurrection. It's hard. I understand that but it is also the key to a life that is beyond what we can imagine. Secondly, there is love. I want you to see the love in the resurrection. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, the word Didymus is just the word for twin. So they'd say, hey, the twin's over here. Okay, that's it. One of the, that's great, there you go. That's a big thing you wanted to answer. One of the 12... Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. Okay, so here we see Thomas. And Thomas would say, the resurrection is hard. It's hard, totally understandable. The resurrection is hard. Why is it so hard for Thomas? We don't know exactly why it's so hard for Thomas. Maybe he has a worldview that things like this can't happen. All his life, he had been taught there's no resurrection till the end of the age. There's no individual. So he's skeptical. Uh, maybe it's his temperament, okay? Um, I don't think the Myers-Briggs was invented at that point, but I think if he had taken it, 
Thomas would be a sensing person rather than an intuitive person. That is, a sensing person is people who pay more attention to physical reality and hard, cold evidence. Intuitive rely more on perception and instinct. And he would be sensing. Maybe there's fear in his heart. This can happen sometimes. It has nothing to do with rationality. It has nothing to do with, it, it, it just is, don't get my hopes up again. Like Thomas is telling him, look, he's dead. Don't get my hopes up. Because I've seen disappointment, and you're just gonna, it's just going to be another disappointment when you go, oh, okay, maybe it was a vision. Maybe he's just afraid to hope. Whatever it is, Thomas sets his demand for the level of evidence that is required for him to believe. He says, this is my demand, this level of evidence. People do that all the time, right? You probably have done it. Maybe we all have done that at one time or another. Even Christians can struggle with this. At some point, though, you don't need more information. A decision needs to be made. At some point, just saying I need more data is an excuse for not believing. And the reality is there's many people who just don't want to believe for whatever reason. Maybe loss of control, loss of freedom loss of autonomy. Maybe you'll have to surrender something you don't want to surrender. Maybe you feel like it's closing off your options. Maybe it's a desire to have all the conditions satisfied. And he says, unless I see, I will not believe. It's interesting there. Because he doesn't say, I need, if I don't see, I cannot believe. He says, I will not. This is my decision. I'm owning it. I will not. And the interesting thing is, in uh, verse 25, where the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, told is in, is, is, is in a tense that means to tell and 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 tell. What's going on? The disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. He goes, I don't believe. And later, Thomas, you got to believe us, man. We all saw him. We all saw I don't believe it. Thomas, come on, dude. We saw him. We're your friends. You can trust us. Take our word for it. We saw him. Unless I stick my finger in the hole, and unless I, and he's saying, guys, you know what a spear is. And it pierced him. I want to stick my hand in there or I will not believe. This is it. You guys are crazy. And so Thomas is probably, (laughs) he's probably getting mad. They keep telling him this. And then we have a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Those locked doors, they just don't get it. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Again, peace. Then he said to Thomas, what a, what a moment this must have been, right? Jesus shows up and they're all like, yes, yes. And he looks at Thomas. And he says, put your finger here. See my hand? Reach out your hand and put it into my side, doubt and stop believing. So this, this plays out for a week. Scripture tells us it's a week before Jesus comes, a week of them telling Thomas, him getting mad and saying, I will not believe. 
and each day, just imagine Thomas going, so uh, where is he? It's been three days. Where is he? The next day, four days, guys. I don't see Jesus. And you know, probably, I always think of Peter, probably he's going, oh boy, you're going to get it. It's when Jesus shows up, he's going to kick you out of the group. Yeah, he's going to just boot and you're out and we're all going to be going, told you so, told you so, told you so. And Jesus appears again and he says, peace again. And here's something, this is where I mentioned, Jesus graciously, Jesus lovingly reaches Thomas where Thomas is. He says, go ahead, touch, feel. And and see, because here's the thing. Thomas said that to the disciples. He didn't say that to Jesus. And Jesus just walks in and says, Thomas, put your finger right here. All right, Thomas, put your hand right here. Touch, feel. And Thomas is going, did somebody tell him? How did he know? How did he know? He knows the doubts that Thomas has. This is our God. He knows what you struggle with. He knows your doubts. He knows the things that you don't want anyone else to know. He knows the deep things, the dark things. And he still comes to you. He says, I love you. I mean, think about it. Jesus is saying, you don't really need more evidence, but I'm going to give you the room. I'm going to give you the space to work this out. And this is what gets me. I mean, I think about this. Jesus humbles himself. Think about that. All right, stick your finger in. Stick your hand in. Jesus is willing to do that. I mean, think about it. Obviously, you know, he's, it's almost like Jesus saying, okay, if seeing is not good enough, touch it. Touch it. That's amazing. That's so loving and humbling. He says, <clears throat> you can believe. You can believe by touching. You can get by, but you, you, you want more proof. But <clears throat> it's almost like Jesus is saying, but I understand this. This is a heart issue here. And I want you to see that he loved him just like he loved Mary. We sang a little while ago how deep the Father's love for us, how incredible God's love for us. Now we're seeing this. We, we saw last week Jesus' incredible love for Mary, coming to her personally, calling her name, giving her the first job, tell the others. And now we see this incredibly deep love where Jesus is saying, Thomas, I'm here for you. The rest believe I'm here for you. This is all about you, Thomas, and my love for you. This, this is the love you've always wanted. This is the love our heart desperately needs. This is the love we were made for. This is the love that says, I love you in spite of your doubts. This is the love that says, I love you and I will seek you with answers. This is the love that says, I love you and I will give you room to explore, to ask questions. I will let you touch. I will let you. <clears throat> because I understand you're struggling. This is, the, this is the love that says, I want you. 
And I want you to come to this. Come to me. Come to this decision. Step out in faith. You know, every parent who's had small children knows that children oftentimes can ask the same question over and over and ad ad infinitum, right? They just ask, why is the sky blue? Why is the sky blue? Why is the sky blue? Why is two plus two four? And it, goes, it can go on over and over and over because children have this capacity. But a good parent knows, what are, what are they trying to do? What a, what a good parent knows is I'm going to try to express this to my child in a way where they kind of come to it. So I don't just say, because sometimes, you know, when it's like the fifth time, why is the sky blue? It's like, because it is. That's it. It just is. And that just cuts the whole thing off. That cuts self-discovery off. That cuts the whole thing off. A good parent knows I'm going to work with my child on this. One of my children asked me when they were little, why is the sky blue? And we talked about it. And why is the sky blue? And we talked about it. And why is the sky blue? We talked about it. And I wanted to say, because it is. But I also knew this is a very inquisitive child. This kid's going to be intelligent, right? Because they're thinking, thinking, thinking. We're talking about it. And I looked at one of my other children, and I said, do you ever wonder why the sky is blue? And this child looked up and went, no. And I was like, that's the dumb one. <laughs> That's the not intelligent one, right? No, I don't believe that. But <clears throat> it kind of went through my mind. All right. And I, you know, I mean, Reagan is intelligent. So um, a good and patient parent, what do they do? They lead. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's giving him space. Jesus waited a week. He says, I want this to work out. I want this to work out. And Jesus comes to Thomas in humility and love and kindness. And Thomas says, unless I feel in touch, and Jesus offers it. And you notice scripture doesn't say Thomas touched. It doesn't say that. It says he just immediately said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You notice Thomas didn't say, oh, okay, I understand now that resurrection is a possibility. Resurrection is on the table. No, he says, my Lord and my God. An astounding thing for a Jew to say. Because he uses two titles of deity. He says, you are God. There's no way around it. I'm convinced now. Not only did he rise from the dead, but he rose for me. He came to me. All along, through those three years, Thomas thought he was serving and in a sense seeking Jesus, the Messiah. But it turned, it turned out that all along, Jesus was seeking and serving him and finally overcoming death for him. And then Jesus tells him, okay, this is, this is what it took for you. He says, but for, there are gonna be those. They're gonna believe the eyewitnesses and this is going to go. And it did, and it did. But let me get a little personal here because I think many times, when people are challenged with believing or trusting God in situations, we come up with all kinds of conditions. If I have to give this up, I, I won't believe. Just like Thomas had a condition. If I have to change this, I won't believe. You mean if I, if I believe in Jesus, I gotta start, start talking to that moron brother-in-law of mine? Is that what I gotta do? Because I'm not sure if it's worth it, right? And unless God answers, 
and, and this is always unspoken, unless God answers every criteria that I have for belief, I will not believe. So oftentimes it's not in, uh, a lack of information. It's too many existing conditions. And there are times when just asking for more data is an excuse to put off things or not believe at all. And so I want you to see here, there is a love that overcomes death for the sake of a person. And it does it in a very personal way. Jesus overcame death specifically here for Thomas. He said, Thomas, and Thomas reacted, you're my Lord and you are my God. So the resurrection is hard. There is a love in the resurrection. And the last thing I want you to see is there's a peace in the resurrection. We've been talking about that, about this peace that is here. Um, we just sang a song, Whom Shall I Fear? Whom? If God is for me, whom shall I fear? Who has more power than him? And Jesus here, he mentions peace three times. John is emphasizing that the resurrected Christ brings peace. And you know what's interesting is Jesus taught all about peace the night before he died. At the Last Supper, he taught them about peace. Jesus was emphasizing, and John here for our sake as an eyewitness is emphasizing that there is a peace that transcends death and it can't be taken away. Whatever the anxiety is that grips us in this world, there is a peace for it. A, a fear in our life, maybe a fear that we'll lose what's most dear to us, a fear that is irretrievable, the loss of a loved one, uh, security, but man, the fear of death. There is a peace that can overcome that. And I, I say that because I know there's people here who will say, I, I've experienced that peace. I've been in that situation. And I've experienced that peace in, I'm not thinking of it, in the most horrific circumstances. I've experienced it. Sometimes it takes time but it breaks through. And Jesus says, I have the answer for what you fear most. He's not offering just some, like an extension of life into eternity. It's an obliteration of your greatest fear. It's an obliteration of the fear of death. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have no reason to fear death. Because the experience of death is not the darkness of the crucifixion and of the grave. Jesus already experienced that. For us, the experience of death is merely a passing shadow on the way to a glorious, sunny day. You ever been that a few years ago? We were at the beach, and it was, it was a beautiful day. And I was doing something with one of my grandkids down in, you know, you get down in the sand, and you dig and find little things, and they run like crazy, and you have fun. And all of a sudden, it was just like darkness. And it was just like one cloud. Have you ever been in that situation where it's a pretty bright day, and there's one cloud, and the edge of the cloud on the ground is defined? It's just like this black shadow. And I was doing something down and it just got, it reminded me of a science fiction movie where the spaceship comes up behind and the shadow hits them and you hear this deep bass as the shadow moves over. And I'm serious. My first thought was, is there like a spaceship? Is this it? Is this it? It's aliens. Man, what am I going to do? Um, and it just went over. And then a few minutes later, the edge of it went over. And it was a glorious sunny day. For a Christian, that's what death is. It's just a shadow that's gone. And you walk into glory. 
And Jesus is emphasizing here there is a peace that transcends death. He will give you the peace your heart longs for. He, overcome de- he overcame death to be with you. And he comes back, not just as some show of power. He came back because death could not separate him from you. That's so key. John ends the chapter this way. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. You may have life in his name. John's intent, he says, it's you and me. There's these signs, there's these things that were done that point and show us who Jesus is and what he did and why did he do it. John has this huge emphasis on scripture being fulfilled. Why? Because God is showing that his plan started at the very beginning in Genesis and worked its way to Jesus. The pinnacle of the plan. So I want to end real quick with one of those scriptures. I love this. This is from Isaiah 53. Now, the whole chapter of Isaiah 53, if you just read it, you'll go, that's Jesus, Jesus, oh, that's Jesus, that's Jesus, that happened to Jesus, that happened to Jesus. But let me just, let me just read you a little bit. It says he, was, uh, uh, he, he, was, he died in a signed uh, grave with uh, the, the wicked and the rich. In his death, he died with the wicked. He had a grave with the rich. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. But it was the Lord's will, it says. It's the Lord's will that he was crushed and he suffered. And the Lord makes his, his life an offering for sin. He will see his offspring. In other words, he won't be dead. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by the knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Because he poured out his life into death and was numbered among the transgressions. For he bore the sin of many, made intercession for the transgressions. And we all got, okay, that's Jesus. But let me tell you something. This is just kind of cool. It's one of these Hebrew things. When I was taking Hebrew, this guy showed, this professor showed it to me. And, and it, it says that he was, um, he died, you know, with the wicked and was signed a grave uh, with the rich in his death. Now, they struggle with this because right there, the word death in Isaiah 53 uh, in verse 9, that is, uh, if anybody's looking, um, the word death is in the plural. Okay, so this is a weird thing because he says he, he was assigned a, this grave with the rich in his deaths. It's plural. Now, how does that work? Well, in Hebrew, they have what they call the plural of intensity. And that is, uh, they pluralize something to emphasize how powerful it is, to emphasize how staggering it is. It's amazing. It's beyond belief. You can't, and so they pluralize. Now, there is just plural in the Hebrew. So when you read the Hebrew, how do you know it's the plural of intensity or it's just a plural? Well, there's a sign. And the sign here is that his deaths, his is singular. And so they take a singular, they take another word that should be singular, and they pluralize it. Pluralize? I don't even know if that's a word, but it sounds good to me. They make it plural because they want to show you something. This is not an average death. This is unique. This is extreme. And, and, and it literally could be translated that he died many deaths. Many deaths. Jesus died many deaths, plural, all in his death, his singular And this is is one of those 
points in, 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 in Scripture. Like John says, the Scriptures were fulfilled. The Scriptures were fulfilled. We see the suffering servant in, in Isaiah 53, and he specifically, Isaiah says, this servant is going to die many deaths or death for many. It's an incredible thing. You know, this is one of those things that helps us see all along as Jesus taught and lived his life, it started putting things together. It started showing what things mean. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, one died for all. Just what Isaiah 53 says. Scripture is fulfilled. And he came back. Why? Because he loved us. And he wants us to experience the peace that comes with knowing that death has been obliterated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word is deep. It's powerful. We will never plumb the depths of it. You always have things for us that we've never understood before. And Lord, even this morning as we grapple with these things and we deal with the resurrection that God, you know our frailties. You know how hard this can be for us. And yet, Lord, as we look at it in a rational way and then take a step of faith and say, I believe, it is life-changing. God, help us to experience that in our lives. Help us to see you working in our lives. But God, most of all, use us to glorify your name and further your kingdom. You told the, the disciples their job was to go and tell others. And now, Lord, we have the same job. Help us to be faithful in that. And we pray that because we know we have the power of the Holy Spirit through your son Jesus in our life. Amen. You know, tradition has it that Thomas went to India. And um, there is, along the coast of part of India, churches that date themselves back to around 70 A.D., led to Christ by the Apostle Thomas. They're called Thomists, T-H-O-M-I-S-T. And that's who brought them the good news. He said, my Lord and my God. And then he obeyed Jesus to the end of the earth. I encourage you to be thinking about that. Jesus may not want you to go to the end of the earth, but he might want you to go next door.